The Bob Murphy Show, episode 216. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show before we dive into today's topic which is the new booklet or pamphlet that I've released. I want to mention I was recently on Tim Pool's show, so I'll put the link in the show notes page. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 216 to get it. It was a good time. It was Lydia, Ian, Tim, and me talking about the news, and then we talked a lot about secession and the prospects thereof. So check that out, and I'm going to be in a soon-to-be-released episode of The Bob Murphy Show, elaborating on some of the topics that came up, but there was a lot more to be said. And so this will be a good way for you to whet your appetite if you go check out the Tim Pool episode. Okay, so today what I'm talking about is this new pamphlet that I've released that I titled Common Sense, The Case for an Independent Texas. So if you've been following my stuff for a bit, you may know that back in June of 2021, I was at Porkfest, and that's what I talked about, that I said, hey, it's uh, time, I think, for us to really be promoting the idea of various states seceding from the United States of America formally, and that to me, that was just the, the best hope we had in the near to midterm for preserving or restoring liberty in the region that we now call the United States. and so. This booklet that I released just elaborates on much of the themes that I talked about in my remarks at Porkfest. So here, let me just summarize some of the points. But of course, I'm pushing you to go check out the pamphlet yourself, which can be conveniently found at the website, texascommonsense.com. So again, just go to texascommonsense.com. And you can see the pamphlet yourself. All right, so I start the booklet out with a chapter entitled Two Americas. And I make the simple point that at this stage of the game, there really are two separate societies or countries living in the same region. And I say there are now two Americas, each with its distinct ethical system, news sources, and version of American history. In a free and tolerant society, two separate nations could coexist, as the bumper sticker implores. But the modern United States is not free, and it is certainly not tolerant. The two Americas hate each other with a growing passion, and if unchecked, that hatred will soon escalate into widespread violence. All right, I don't think I need to elaborate for you folks on what these two Americas consist of and their their viewpoints. You know, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, histrionic here. But it really is, uh, I think, foreshadowing the near-term prospects of large-scale violence. Okay, and I, I don't mean between private citizens and the U.S. military. I mean, like, 
Proud Boys versus Antifa, that kind of stuff. And after going through some of the obvious ways in which there are now two Americas, I, I close with this. For those refusing to see what is staring them in the face, the NFL has literally begun playing two national anthems before its games. In recognition of the two Americas, there must be an accompanying political separation. The rest of this pamphlet is dedicated to the proposition that the state of Texas must be restored to its status as an independent republic. Such a restoration is no magic bullet and will not resolve all of America's problems, but it will help tremendously. The time to act is now. All right, and so now let me, for the remainder of this episode of the Bob Murphy Show, let me just go through and hit some of the points that I raise in this pamphlet. So I'm probably not going to be reading from it the way that I just did. I'll just be paraphrasing, but I did want you to get the sense of the tone from uh, my opening chapter. So what I do in chapter two, the title is Texans Should Separate from the U.S. Federal Government, and I just go through and list all the ways that the U.S. Federal Government right now is not something with which you want to be allied. So I cover what they did with the monetary base. Those of you who've been following my work know very well the story there. And I just point out that what Texas could do, it's not that the Texas authorities need to issue their own currency, right? They don't need to replace the U.S. dollar. They just need to have standard contractual enforcement and let private entities do whatever they want in terms of assets. And I also mentioned that the Texas government at various levels, you know, presumably they're still going to have taxes, even though I wouldn't want them to, but they will collect taxes or other sorts of payment, you know, for their bridges or whatnot. And they naturally will accept, you know, maybe they'll accept U.S. dollars in the beginning. But that's not monetary policy. Just like if a restaurant in Cancun catering to tourists accepts both U.S. dollars and euros, not just Mexican pesos, right? And they can even have the, you know, the exchange rate posted that day or something, you know, for the people who go into the restaurant and they can see, oh, if you pay in euros, then the way you convert euros to pesos, you know, because the, the menu will be quoted in pesos, the way you make that conversion is, you know, they could have things that update daily or even hourly or something, depending on how much the currencies are moving. So that's something you do, whereas you couldn't just go and pay with chickens, probably in that restaurant, All right? So they would, in a trade-off between, you know, the inconvenience on their end from having to accept all kinds of different things, different assets, and then go convert them into whatever they ultimately want to use themselves versus being convenient for their possible customers by offering a wide spectrum of payment options. That's something that you leave up to the market to decide. And likewise, because Texas government offices want to get paid and they can set policies about, well, this is the type of stuff we accept. That's not monetary policy. And, and the reason I'm stressing this in case you wonder, like, why is Bob making Because a standard theory for how money gets defined or, or implemented in a region is that, oh, it's because of the government's taxation. Like, in other words, an MMT person might say, oh, the reason the U.S. dollar has purchasing power is because that's what you have to pay your U.S. government taxes in. And I won't get into it right now. I, I think that's a terrible argument. And there's lots of problems with it, both conceptually and then if you try to like break it down in terms of implications of it, like, oh, so that means if, if they cut the tax rate in half, would that make the dollar get weaker? Well, no, it actually makes the dollar get stronger. 
which doesn't fit the theory. Okay. So that's what I'm saying that the Texas authorities do not need to issue their own money or have their own monetary policy, even though they will have to specify how they can get paid. I also talk about the federal debt. In case you don't know this, let me just mention. So the total public debt at the federal level went from $9.5 trillion or 64% of GDP in early 2000. And then in, I think, second quarter of 2021, it had risen to $28.5 trillion or 126% of GDP. All right, just 13 years after. So that's a pretty big increase. Again, the, the big thing is going from 64% of GDP to 126% of GDP, all right, in just 13 years. So, and by the way, that figure, again, that's total public debt at the federal level. So that might be bigger than some numbers you've seen. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll say total public debt held by the public. And what they're doing with that caveat is they're excluding the treasury debt that is held by the federal government itself. All right, so I'm almost positive the treasury debt held by the Fed is included in debt held by the public, even though you might think, oh, the Federal Reserve is not public. But what it's excluding is intra-governmental assets. And since the Federal Reserve technically is a private corporation owned by banks, and the, you know some leftists think that's the, that's the most important thing you need to know about the Fed, so the, the federal debt held by the Fed is included in debt held by the public. All right. So the total public debt of the figure I just read you, the 126% of GDP, that includes stuff like the Social Security Trust Fund, which you know, is, is like $2 trillion and change, I think, at the moment. Either way, the CBO projects that by... 2031, because of rising interest rates and changing demographics, which puts pressure on Social Security and Medicare, that the public debt held by the public is a share of the economy, of course, will surpass its all-time peak that was set, you know, around world, the World War II era. Okay, so that's a dicey situation. And then also, when it comes to entitlements, in case... You don't know how bad that stuff is. The uh, and I and I just went up and I just dug up the latest trustee report. You know, so the government itself, when it comes to Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, has these trustees that analyze, you know, the government's books, its liabilities and assets with respect to those programs. And over a seventy-five year horizon, right? So with all this stuff, if you're asking, like, oh, is Social Security bankrupt or not? Well, you need to know how long is the time horizon that we're using because the further out in the future you look, the worse it becomes since as the population ages, there are fewer and fewer workers to support a given Social Security recipient, right? So in any event, what they do in these reports, these trustee reports is they'll often report it in a 75-year horizon. So if you look out from now, between now and 75 years in the future, and they make, you know, they take the current benefit schedule and assume that that stays fixed. And they make projections about, you know, new workers coming on the scene, blah, blah, blah. What are the payroll taxes going to look like? What are the outgoing benefit payments going to look like? And there's a huge mismatch. 
And the mismatch is so big that the present discounted value of the funding gap for Social Security and Medicare right now, they estimated it at about $68 trillion. All right. Now, what that means is if the government had an extra $68 trillion just given to it right now, it's free money, and then it invested that. So it starts rolling over and earning interest. Going forward, every year, the mismatch between how much they need to pay according to the current benefit schedules to Social Security and Medicare recipients versus how much are they collecting in payroll taxes and Medicare premium payments, right? So the outgoing payments to the beneficiaries is smaller than the revenue, as it were, if you're looking at it like a business or an insurance company coming in, that even though they had that fund of $68 trillion on the side that was invested generating interest, they start drawing that thing down to help cover the funding gap. After the 75 years are up, the entire $68 trillion in any interest that had been generating along the way would have been absorbed as well. Okay, so it's not saying there's $68 trillion in payments they got to make over the next 75 years. It's saying that's the mismatch between the payments they're supposed to make to people according to the existing benefit formula and the shortfall that they think they're going to get because there's not going to be enough coming in from payroll taxes and premiums on Medicare. All right, so that gives you some idea of the whole. And, and to be clear, that number, that $68 trillion, has nothing to do with the federal debt that I just told you about. That, that public debt figure that I quoted you, that refers to outstanding treasury bonds held or securities because it's bills and notes, right? So that's actual, you know, contractual IOU that the U.S. Treasury borrows money from somebody. And then that person's holding a piece of paper saying the bearer of this is entitled to a flow of interest and principal repayment from the U.S. Treasury. That is what is currently at about $28.5 trillion. Just that really crystal clear treasury debt. Whereas the federal government just promising workers, hey, we're taking payroll taxes from you right now, but don't worry, you're going to get paid social security benefits when you turn 59 and a half or whatever, according to the schedule. That is not being rolled into the official public debt, even though, you know, it's an entitlement. Okay. And then what I say about the Texas solution for that one is that part of what's going on here, the reason the social security program is so screwed up is that it's a pay-go system, right? So right now, existing workers have money taken out of their paychecks, and then that funds today's beneficiaries. But in a private system where each individual or, or household, you know, takes care of its own retirement and, you know, paying premiums and, and for disability insurance and stuff like that, it's longitudinal, if you understand what I'm, what I mean by that. And so by the time somebody's 65, let's say, and then they, they aren't working at their conventional job and they're just drawing income from their financial assets that they've been building up over their working career, demographic shifts don't matter. It's not that you need to say, oh, we got to maintain two workers for every retired person or otherwise the numbers don't work out. You, you might think that. And I've seen some people say that, that like, hey, in the grand scheme, ultimately the only way 
you can have old people who aren't working still being able to eat and live in, you know, a nice apartment and whatever and get nurses checking in on them and whatever is if, uh, you know, somehow the, the output from today's workers, some of it's being skimmed off the top. And you might think like that, but no, that's, that's not correct. And the reason is if you've been working and saving and investing during your productive years, there are more capital goods in existence when you retire at 65 or whatever the year is. And so the workers of that day are more physically productive because of your career of saving and accumulation. All right. So, so yeah, in a sense, the output that the workers generate when they go into the factories and go out into the fields and, you know, go into the hospitals and whatever and create and the services they produce, there's a sense in which some of that is being siphoned away to pay the retired folks so they can consume even though they're not working anymore. But it's not that they're taking stuff that the workers created on their own merits, right? It's think of it as somebody who's 65 and has been working their whole career and then is now retired. Imagine they have like a bunch of tractors that they've built up over the decades. And now they go up to a farmer who right now is, you know, hiring sharecroppers to, you know, come in and work the land and they're just using primitive tools. And now this 65 year old comes up with a bunch of tractors and says, Hey, I'll let you use my tractors. I'll rent them out to you in exchange for some of the uh, harvest. Okay. So there, there's no question that, Oh, that person who, who owns the tractors is skimming off the top of the harvest. And really it's just the manual laborers who are creating all of the food. No, you wouldn't, that's not what's going on there. And so that's in a sense what happens when you have not a pay-go system, but a uh, retirement system that's funded by a working career's worth of saving and accumulation that each individual brings to the table at retirement time, extra tools and equipment that augments the productivity of the labor of the people who are young and are still working at that point so that the total output is higher than it otherwise would have been. And so that's why even when you then siphon some of that off and let the elderly consume it, the workers are still getting paid their marginal product. It's not that they're having, you know, something skimmed off the top. Okay, so that's how that works. Okay, so I'll link incidentally to my social security analysis that I did for Econ Lib a while ago, just so you folks can see that in case you're curious. So regarding the issue of the of Texas seceding, and by the way, I in general think we should not exclusively use the term secession just because it has negative connotations. And really another equally correct way of describing it is to say Texas independence or an independent Texas instead of Texas secession, right? So the 4th of July, it's called Independence Day, but it's also Secession Day. But Independence Day has a nicer ring to it, doesn't it? So as far as the military, this is another thing I mentioned in this second chapter. I say that according to one estimate, in 2020, the U.S. government spent $778 billion on its military, which was tripled the second place value, which was China at an estimated $252 billion. But another way of looking at it is if you have China and the next nine countries combined, still the U.S. outspent that whole group. All right, so that's an incredible disparity. And this is why 
I say that the U.S. is maintaining a global empire. Another way of looking at it, I quoted from a different estimate saying that as of 2014, the U.S. had maintained 800 foreign military bases in more than 70 countries or territories. And to get some context for that, Britain, France, and Russia combined only maintained 30 foreign bases in like manner. Okay, so again, when we talk about the U.S. empire, that's not just a figure of speech or hyperbole. There really is a U.S. empire and one that I would say is in the stage of collapse that I th agree with Jim Rogers. I heard him one time at the Mises Institute say that the 19th century was the British century for the, you know, the British empire. The 20th was the American century and the 21st would be the Chinese century. And I think he's entirely correct. So as far as, you know, what would an independent Texas do to get away from this problem? I said, they, they don't need a standing army, right? They should just be an example, a shining city on a hill to the rest of the world, be the freest country on planet Earth, show everybody how liberty works, and that's the best thing you can do. And we don't need to worry about other countries invading Texas because, as Admiral Yamamoto apparently said or reputedly said, we don't know, the quote's actually in doubt, apparently, when I went and looked it up, but he apparently said, you know, during World War II, you can never invade mainland United States because there'd be a rifle behind each blade of grass. And so likewise, Texas is huge. Lots of people live there. They're heavily armed and they would be extra heavily armed if it were an independent country and they had time to prepare if some other government was like preparing its own people with a propaganda campaign to justify why it was going to invade Texas. And so, no, you couldn't do it. Just like the U.S. government had to leave Afghanistan in humiliation. There's no way the U.S. government even could occupy and maintain control in Texas if they were smart about it, if they followed the principles of economic and political liberty, that would be an ungovernable region as far as an outside conqueror and evader. Mm -hmm. And so that's my analysis of that. Let me just mention too, I, I said... When it comes to drugs, I quoted some statistics saying that right now there's about 450,000 people at any given time who are confined in the U.S. for nonviolent drug offenses. So, you know, that's just a human tragedy, not just for the prisoners themselves, but also, you know, the family. There's lots of children growing up without fathers because they're being held when, you know, I don't think they should be behind bars. And I said, but beyond all this, why I think that a new Republic of Texas ought to have liberalized markets and recreational drugs, not just because of standard arguments over drug legalization, but because that, you know, just think of it, if the huge landmass right now that we call Texas, if that were an area where drug markets were at least decriminalized, the prices of those recreational drugs would collapse. And so that would destroy Texas-based gang warfare, but also the Mexican cartels, because it's not just any customers that they had who happened to live in Texas, but if there's that huge landmass of Texas that, you know, you can get heroin, cocaine, marijuana, and so forth at market prices, not, you know, prices that are hugely inflated because of a drug war, then that's going to draw down the prices even in the other 49 states of the U.S. All right, so it's going to just crush the prices of those exports from the point of view of the drug cartels 
and they're going to implode. And so that is a huge source of instability and corruption in the Mexican governments, you know, police forces and so forth and military. And so I'm saying the Texas authorities, if they are going to break away from the United States orbit, are going to want to have a stable, strong ally to the south to help them stand up to their big brother to the north. And so one great way to bolster their ally is to get rid of this stupid drug war. Hey folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. Okay, so let me now just hit some of the points I make in my final chapter, which handles concerns and objections. So one thing that I did like about this document is my chapter three, which I'm skipping right now, is titled, The Rest of the Country Should Let Them Go. So I didn't just make the case that the people of Texas ought to secede and that incidentally I was saying people in the other states who agree with that sentiment should think about moving to Texas to help move the, you know, the votes in the referenda, but also just to be down there, you know, when freedom gets amplified. So, but I wasn't just writing it to them. I was also writing it to the people who might oppose that and say, no, just let them go. And I went through and made arguments as to why, but I won't cover those here in this podcast episode. So let me just mention some of the things I bring up in the fourth chapter, concerns and objections. So an obvious concern is, is this legal, right? Like suppose the people of Texas do vote to leave the union. Can they do that legally? Or, you know, is that treason or something? Is it illegal? So I argue that it, it is not treasonous, that it's, it's legal. And I dug up. So when Texas back in 1845, 1846, was going through the process of becoming incorporated as a U.S. state. So at that time, by the way, it was the Republic of Texas. So make sure you know that. With this episode right now, I'm trying to run through some of these things quickly. But Texas was originally, it wasn't just like a colony, the way like the 13 colonies, where it was its own republic. It was an independent sovereign country that then agreed to join with the, you know, other U.S. states as part of the United States of America. And incidentally, some Texas patriots disagree with what I just said. They would say, no, technically, it it never actually did join. It didn't follow the protocol. But let's put that aside. I'm not weighing in on that argument one way or the other. But according to the standard history, like if you go to Wikipedia and just look up, you know, Texas joining the union, what happened is the Texas president, Anson Jones, called for a convention that was going to be held on July 4th of 1845 that would approve the annexation offer that the U.S. government had made, all right? And so then they went ahead and did that. The convention approved the annexation offer. And then as part of what had to happen is they needed to come up with their own state constitution. Okay, so if you look up Constitution of Texas, there's different versions of it depending on the year. And so the 1845 Constitution of Texas is the one that this convention drafted in response to the situation of, okay, the United States government has now formally made us an annexation offer. And so part of what we have to do is first, you know, are we going to approve it? Are the people going to approve it? And then we have to approve our own constitution that will be the state of Texas's constitution as we join the union. And so not only did the people of Texas through the representatives and so forth approve that constitution, 
So did the U.S. government. You know, when they incorporated Texas, they signed off on it and said, ah, yes, you have satisfied the requirements that we made. You came up with your own state constitution. And now welcome Texas as the 28th state. And so in that 1845 constitution of Texas, it says right in the beginning, all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. And they have at all times the unalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay, so again, this was what the people of Texas agreed to as their constitution, and this is what the U.S. federal government at the time that it incorporated or annexed Texas as the 28th state signed off on. So if we ask, do the people of Texas have the sovereignty, do they have the political authority to withdraw from the United States of America? Yes, they do. That was part of what you know, the rules were when they joined and both sides agreed to that, that the people of Texas retained this political power. So there you go. And then I mentioned, suppose you disagree. Okay. Well, clearly when Texas joined the union, the federal government was promising to abide by the U S constitution. And so we have to, did they live up to their end of the bargain? Well, no, they obviously didn't. And I go through and list several examples where, federal officials are clearly violating the U.S. Constitution just, you know, brazenly, and they don't even get punished for it. So I often bring up Obama's secret kill list. In case you've never heard that, let me just read it. So this is from a New York Times story talking about this. This is from a New York Times article. It is the strangest of bureaucratic rituals. Every week or so, more than 100 members of the government's sprawling national security apparatus gather by secure video teleconference to pour over terrorist suspects' biographies and recommend to the president who should be the next to die. And then I'll jump forward a little bit. Mr. Aulaki's calls for more attacks presented Mr. Obama with an urgent question. Could he order the targeted killing of an American citizen in a country with which the United States was not at war, in secret, and without the benefit of a trial? Okay, so they're openly talking about how Obama ordered the targeted killing of a U.S. citizen who was located in a country with which the U.S. government was not at war and it was done in secret and with no trial, all right, U.S. citizen. So, and they said, yes, yes, we can because we internally deliberated. So that's the due process that the Constitution requires. So anyway, no, I, I disagree that just because the U.S. president and some of his advisors discuss it and deliberate about it beforehand before they go murder somebody, that doesn't mean the person has had due process, okay? So the U.S. federal government clearly has not been obeying the Constitution, you know, notwithstanding the, quote, Supreme Court people that sign off on what they do, people who are picked by the U.S. federal government itself. And so the people of Texas should feel no moral or legal obligation to remain in league with this criminal enterprise known as the U.S. federal government. So they might say, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. Okay, fine. But don't refrain from supporting Texas secession because you think, oh, it's illegitimate. You're, you know, we don't have the right to do that. That No, any moral or legal legitimacy that the U.S. federal government may have had, they squandered when they just brazenly flouted their constitutional limits. Okay, another question you often get is, didn't the Civil War settle this issue? And that's monstrous and goofy. 
All right, Tom Woods had a, had a great line of this, and I want to I want to publicly say, make sure get it here. This I, I got this from Tom. Is he said that would be like if if somebody were an activist trying to get more autonomy for uh, you know Native American tribes, and imagine if somebody said you know more more freedom from Native Americans. I mean, didn't the Trail of Tears settle this question? All right, anybody who said that would lose their job in today's discourse. And yet, if somebody talks about, hey, maybe some of the southern states should break away, somebody else will say, well, didn't the Civil War settle this question? Like, no, you're not allowed to leave. Otherwise, we'll murder you. What, what, I, don't, I don't understand. We'll just slaughter hundreds of thousands of Americans, and that will show that you're, you're not allowed to go. All right. I also bring up the issue of sort of a logistical question, or practical, let's say, if Texas secedes, what happens to social security payments? Like there's, you know, millions of people living in Texas who've been paying in the system their whole career. What, what happens there? So there I said, it's actually conceptually pretty simple. Right now, if somebody who lives in San Antonio decides to relocate to Paris, that person still gets his or her social security benefits, right? De- depending on some specifics about how long were you paying in and whatever. But in general, if you decide to leave the United States and go live somewhere else, you don't forfeit your social security payments. Now with Medicare, it's trickier because you Medicare is only going to reimburse you at least according to the standard thing. If you go to their website and, and look at this stuff and there might be nuances, but generally speaking, the bright line rule is Medicare is not going to reimburse you for medical expenses incurred abroad, but that's even if you're still a U.S. citizen, right? So there's nothing special there about being expat, okay? But you can even renounce your U.S. citizenship and go move to plenty of places on earth and still get your social security payments, you know, assuming that you're eligible for them and so forth. All right. So my point is if all of a sudden Texas turns into a foreign country vis-a-vis Washington, DC, the people who still live now in that foreign land don't all of a sudden forfeit their social security benefits because just like if you move to Paris, you don't forfeit it. All right. So it's actually pretty simple. It's just a bunch of people doing it at once. It's like instead of a bunch of people from Texas moving to another country physically, they're transforming Texas into a foreign country is the way to think about it. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention is what about U.S. government military bases located in Texas right now? What happens to them? As I said, look, first, in general, if Texas turns into a foreign country or into another country, an independent sovereign land, it would be foolish and immoral for the Texas government to go around nationalizing, you know, let's say Exxon Mobil assets in the Permian Basin. They might be tempted to do that in the short term. Like, oh, wow, all these oil wells are ours now. We can do what we want with them. But that would be wrong, number one. It'd be theft. But also, number two, it would then provide a bad precedent. Investors around the world would say, whoa, we don't want to invest in this new Republic of Texas because the government there can't be trusted. They'll just grab your stuff whenever they feel, you know, their treasury is getting running low. And so clearly what officials in the Republic of Texas ought to do, both in terms of it's the right thing and also to promote long-term economic growth is to respect property rights. And also too, anybody who voted as a loyalist, you know, who said, no, I want to stay in the United States, let's not secede, they should be utterly respected, right? There should be no punitive countermeasures taken, no retaliation in any way. All right, again, it's the right thing to do, but also that's the way to maintain peace. You, you don't want to give a pretext to Washington 
to say, oh, you know, the loyalists are being abused or their property is not being respected. And so therefore, that's why the U.S. government needs to send the Marines in. You, you don't want to give them a pretext for that. So everybody's got to be respected during this, you know, transition. If the, you know, vote in the referendum or however it goes down is approved. Okay, so incidentally, I say in the pamphlet that I think it should be at least a two to one majority. In other words, only go through with declaring independence from the United States and you know going through the logistics of severing ties with the U.S. government, telling U.S. government officials, okay, these military bases, that's still your property, like the tanks and planes and whatever that are located on U.S. air bases or whatnot, army bases located in Texas, that's your property, but you need to remove it. All right, so it's not that the Texas government now owns those tanks, but it can say as a sovereign nation, get your military out of our country. You're allowed to do that. All right, and so that's the way I think that it would be handled. But just to finish that train of thought, I was saying, I think before that machinery is put into motion, you would want at least a two-to-one majority, right? So if there were a referendum on should Texas formally declare independence from the United States, that you would want it to be that all the people who vote in that referendum who are Texas residents or whatever, that it's at least 67% in favor. So a two-to-one majority. Again, not there's anything magical about that, obviously. The only thing truly special would be 100%. You want a complete (laughs) consensual thing where everybody agrees. But given that there's going to be disagreement, I would say, for legitimacy and just to prove to the world this is the will of the people insofar as that phrase means anything, you would want to have a huge supermajority, like two-to-one. And build that up through education and encouraging people to migrate into Texas and become, you know, Texas voters. Because this, this becomes more and more of a reality and as the U.S. empire continues to crumble and the other 49, or some states are better than, going to be better than others. But as people see the existing America and U.S. political system as it gets worse and worse, more and more people are going to be interested in relocating. And so if there's this growing popular movement for Texas independence, it will be a magnet for people. And so I'm saying do it, you know, once you have at least a two to one supermajority, just so everybody knows it's it's pointless to argue that this was a rigged vote or something. And again, you do not want to give the U.S. authorities a pretext to use military power to try to stop this thing. Okay, so that's a good point to wrap up on. Again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 216 for links to my common sense pamphlet and some of the other things I've mentioned. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.